Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free whilst lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenens might be a solution for you. If you're considering Locum Tenens either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, Locum Story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty. Be able to compare it with different Locum's agencies and there's even a quiz to help decide if Locum's is right for you. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum. So everyone, make sure to check out LocumStory.com. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, my next guest is someone that has been in all kinds of interesting things. He did the corporate gig at Ford Motor Company. He founded a staffing firm, and then he started investing in real estate. And he's a guy way more popular than me. He's been on HDTV. He's uh, been a contributor to Fox Business and Bigger Pockets and all kinds of good stuff. I probably even listened to him before, and I didn't even know it. And as a matter of fact, if you look most recently, he co-hosted a podcast called How to Lose Money. That's a good topic there for us to talk about. Please help me welcome Paul Moore. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Hey, Dave. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're big stuff, man. You know, doing all those different things and... and uh, Don't tell my wife. <laughs> she brings you back to earth, right? Yeah, right. I love it. Um, so I gave a little bit of an introduction to you, Paul, and talking about uh, what you have done. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Southern Ohio. I got an engineering degree, and then uh, I went to Ohio State for um, my MBA, then went to Ford Motor Company after that for a while. Interesting. And so um, growing up, I know we're going to talk a lot about real estate today. Did you grow up with your folks investing in real estate? You know what? What uh, was your exposure to money and investing as you were growing up? Yeah, you know, I remember around mid-April, uh, maybe late April every year, my, my mom would come to the door when I came home from school one day a year holding this yellow envelope from the government, which was our tax refund. My dad was a W-2 employee, quite successful actually, but um, we lived, honestly, Paycheck to paycheck, I think, was closer to what we lived because they spent everything that they made either on stuff or eating out. 
they weren't good savers. They weren't good investors and they were definitely not entrepreneurs mm -hmm. though. Um, you know, I owe them incredibly for the life and the character that they gave me. Uh, honestly, Dave, I did not grow up in that mindset at all. And it, it got me off to a kind of a bad foot on my own. What, what do you, what do you think flipped the switch for you that all of a sudden, you know, you, you were raised a certain way and something must have triggered in you or something started your obsession with investing. Yeah. And so, well, I, I sold my company to a publicly traded firm in 1997, almost 25 years ago. And I thought I'm a full-time investor now. And it felt pretty good for a while until I started losing money. I realized I was not a full-time investor, Dave. I was a full-time speculator. I didn't know the difference. I didn't know what true wealth was, in fact. And so I, you know, I, I think investing is when your principal's generally safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And speculating is when your principal is not at all safe and you've got a chance to make a return. And I speculated more than invested early on. And I made a lot of money, but I lost a lot of money as well. And so so, so um, tell me, tell me more about that, Paul, like what, what, what were you speculating in or what was, how did you decide what to invest in, you know, at that time? Well, I was an entrepreneurial investor. I think I was an entrepreneur at heart all along. And I wanted to get the same thrill out of my investing as I did out of my uh, entrepreneurial efforts. I didn't know the truth, you know, uh, the, um, uh, the first U.S. economist to win the Nobel Peace Prize said, investing should be boring. Investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Now, Paul Samuelson said that, but that was not my attitude. I liked shiny objects. I thought it was fun and I paid a big price for it. Like One of the things I invested in is I invested in a currency currency trading thing. Mm. Uh, the guy was claiming to make 3% per month profit on for his investors. And that guy is now in year 22, I think, of his 158-year prison term. Mm. Um, I invested in oil and gas. Now, I had a petroleum engineering degree, but that doesn't mean I knew about this particular oil and gas investment. And my friends and I dumped over a million dollars in a hole in the ground and nothing came out. Um, and so different things like that, um, even though I was you know, investing in real estate and doing really well, flipping a lot of houses, flipping waterfront lots at a resort, sort of like Lake Minnetonka in your area. Um, at the same time, I would do things like, you know, buying a five acre piece of waterfront property, speculating, uh, you know, betting on the fact that the county would let me divide it into five one acre lots. That was quite dangerous and not something I'd recommend. And so you, you uh, were, were a full time investor and speculator. Were, were you watching, you know, all this hard earned money that you sold? Um, to a publicly traded company? Was it just going down the drain? Did you still have kind of a substantial net worth? Like what, what happened in that process? Yeah. So like I said, I was making a lot of money from these deals I was doing. I mean, we were, I made more money per hour flipping waterfront lots than anything I've ever done, I think. Um, but uh, I also saw some money gone in these different things. Like, uh, you know, I mentioned, 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we were doing well financially, but I wouldn't say we were building up true wealth. I, I, I now define true wealth as having assets that throw off cash flow. And I didn't have that. I was doing a lot of transactions, having a lot of fun. But like I said, I was more of an entrepreneurial investor in the sense that I wasn't bored with it. I, I didn't see it as a boring enterprise and I wish I had. <laughs> and, you know, a, a, along the way, like what year are we in now that walk me through to kind of, what, at what yeah. point did you have the epiphany? You know, at this, this isn't working for me. I got money in the bank. I'm doing fine but yeah. um, this isn't doing what I want it to do. Like what, what year is this now? Yeah. So in 2010, we invested in an oil and gas deal I mentioned earlier in North Dakota. And we saw, you know, I always over the years, you know, I, I did residential houses, all kinds of other things, lease to owns. I built seven or eight houses. I did a tiny subdivision, but I didn't know how to get into commercial real estate. I didn't know where the on-ramp was. I didn't know how to get started. Well, we got started because in that oil and gas uh, deal in 2010, we realized there was a massive housing shortage. My business partner had a small jet and he would fly up to North Dakota to be, you know, to, you know, preview this oil deal and said there was not a place to stay. So we built very quickly, built a multifamily slash quasi hotel uh, to, um, house the oil workers and executives coming up there for the Bakken oil rush. And we were charging what seemed outrageous for an apartment, a 300 square foot furnished apartment for 4,000 a month actually was quite a good deal. If you looked at it as a hotel at $129 a night or so. Mm -hmm. So we did that, made a lot of money, had a great time, did it again. And then uh, my business partner built a Hyatt hotel in Minot, North Dakota, and I decided I wanted to stay in multifamily. And that's when I had the epiphany, I guess, of, you know, this is a way to build up long-term multi-generational wealth, not just do a bunch of transactions. So I, I stayed in multifamily. Um, not that long after that, I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment about really humble title about multifamily. And, uh, so that's, that's what got me into commercial real estate. And that's what got me into really building true wealth. Um, you know, one of, one of the things we talk about, and of course, the title of the podcast is the freedom formula for physicians. Um, what does that mean to you? You know, if you think about achieving freedom, like when is someone financially free? There's a lot of ways I could answer that. Um, <clears throat> one way would be, again, having assets that produce cash flow. That's not necessarily a BMW or a mansion or a boat, though those things now can produce some cash flow. They usually don't. <laughs> um, uh, they do produce cash flow. What am I saying? Uh, to the banker, right? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, no, it's true. I think it's having assets that produce cash flow. That's, that's freedom. Um, it's also freedom from uh, the cost of distraction. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, if you are constantly managing, let's say you're doing day trading on the side, or you're constantly staring at your Bitcoin account, or you've got, you know, Bitcoin on margin, like some people do, all these things, they're, they're constantly stressed from what I've noticed, or they're watching a stock ticker, or, you know, that they're, and there's a hidden cost to that. To me, that's not freedom. It's not freedom if I am sitting in bed with my wife at 10 o'clock in the evening, and I'm 
scrolling through again, the stock ticker, trying to figure out if I should sell or buy. To me, that's not freedom. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a cost that's going to take a toll on my health, on my relationships, and it's not going to give me the free time that I want to have as somebody who, you know, as I'm thinking of physicians who have worked so hard for so long to build wealth, to me, that's not a great use of your time when for virtually no effort, you could invest that money wisely and have somebody else do the heavy lifting, somebody who's a specialist in that arena. So like to you, is it based on a certain like number like how how would you define it in terms of when do you know that you've achieved it it's like all right i got income coming in that's great but you know like do you build in a margin of safety for example you know what, hmm. what does that look like how do you know that you've made it yeah warren buffett says the key uh, to his investment success is uh, buying assets with a margin of safety. And so, yeah, I absolutely believe in building in a margin of safety. I think when your passive cash flow, um, you know, exceeds your current income and you have a margin of safety on top of that and some fail safes, I think that's when you're there. Warren Buffett also said, if you don't learn to make money while you, while you sleep, you'll have to work until you die. And so I guess that's a form of non-freedom as well. And that's having to work till you die. Um, and if so, I, I guess having assets, again, that produce cash flow like that with a great margin of safety, that's where I would, you know, look to be um, if I was uh, in those shoes. And if I was wanting to slow down on my current W-2 or, you know, my current uh, practice. Okay, good. Now, um you mentioned this whole journey of going from, from uh, the land, some of the, the land dividing up and, and the building up of multifamily um, portfolio to, to kind of getting out of that. And now, from my understanding, you've got into self-storage. How, how did that start? Well, um, I wrote a book, like I said, called The Perfect Investment. But after about four years of banging our head up against the wall, I mean, I was in my early 50s by then. And we were banging our head up against the wall trying to find multifamily that made sense. Now, you can't look in a rearview mirror and say, well, it made sense because we didn't know at the time what the future held. But in 2014, 15, 16, we were just you know, trying unsuccessfully to find multifamily, to find apartment deals that made sense. And we did not want to risk our money and our investors' money, more importantly, in deals that were, again, speculative. I was getting away from speculation. I didn't want to dive back into it, especially not with millions of dollars of my investors' money. And so I had a following from my book and podcasts and other things. And I went to these investors finally, and I said, hey, guys and gals, I don't think we can do this and do it safely, even though all kinds of people all around me are making millions of dollars in this. I just think, you know, the, the rising tide has lifted all boats for the last decade, let's say at the time, since the Great Recession. But someday that tide's going to go out. And like Buffett says, then we'll see who's skinny dipping. Well, I didn't want to be one of the skinny dippers and I didn't want my investors to get in trouble. So 
I said to him, we got to find some asset classes with a lot more meat on the bone, a lot more margin of safety. And we found that in self-storage and then later in mobile home parks and then in some other asset classes we've added since then. So we made a reluctant jump away from multifamily into self-storage. And then, like I said, other asset types as well. The problem, Dave, is just like a lot of physicians listening to this, I wasn't an expert in self-storage. I didn't have a background. I didn't have a team. I didn't have technology. Most importantly, you know, I, I didn't have the operating prowess in the acquisition pipeline. So we went back to our investors another time, a second time and said, hey, um, you know, we, we're making the jump to self-storage, but we don't have the team to do it. It's, sure, it looks easy, but to do it really, really well, it's not easy. It's a retail business and a real estate investment. And so we decided, and our investors came along for the ride, we decided to be a due diligence partner to our investors and actually go out and look for the very best operators. Later, we realized we wanted diversification. So we put those best operators together in funds. And then we let our investors for one, let's say 50 or $100,000 check be spread across you know, several asset classes, lots of different operators, lots of different geographies. And that's, you know, that's how we got into self-storage, mobile home parks, and other asset types. So I think, um, you know, I often say physicians have never been to business school. And so a lot of this podcast is around trying to understand some of the terminology and the lingo around it. And uh, you use the term operator. So what does an operator do as a, and what are, what's your company doing, you know, in relation to the operators? Help us understand yeah. what that means. An operator is a generic term I would use for an asset manager, property manager, uh, you know, syndicator, all rolled into one. This is a company who, you know, is buying or building or converting uh, a building into self-storage or into other asset types. This is the folks, you know, who are the experts. These are the people who know the business inside and out. We're investing with them as a fund manager, a fund of their deals and their portfolios. Does that make sense? Sure. So they basically are the ones who are finding the deals. They're the ones who are managing the, the properties mm -hmm. themselves, or maybe not. Maybe some of that becomes separate functions, I guess. When you're dealing that's with right. so many, I'm sure some of these things are separated out, right? You know, maybe yeah, some, that's right. Some, some operators might manage, some might not. Um, I, I would think in general with self-storage that, that knowing what I know about it, which, which I'm learning more, but I don't know a ton that it certainly, you know, you, some of the operations around it and management of it is, well, you got to get tenants in, you have to look at raising rents. Sometimes you have to kick tenants out and auction off stuff. Um, but it's not like you got to fix leaky toilets and right. have, have uh, rat problems perhaps mm -hmm. and those sorts. I suppose you could in a self-storage facility, but that's more unlikely than likely, I would imagine. It's not likely you'll get a 3 a.m. call from a lawnmower in unit two complaining about the noise in unit seven. <laughs> and it's not likely you'll get a call about 
uh, a toilet leak because there are no toilets except in the office. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, self-storage has a lot of benefits and a lot of people think they're just, you know, little metal boxes that spit out cash. And I can't say that's the furthest thing from the truth, but I can say it's not true. And the great news is that of the 53,000 or so self-storage facilities in the U.S., that's about the same as Subway, McDonald's, and Starbucks combined, about half of those are owned by mom and pop operators. And some of them, actually a lot of them, think that way. They think, hey, look, I set it up, I forget it. And there's a lot of evidence that they do that. These mom and pop operators typically don't have the desire or the resources or the knowledge to upgrade the facility and run it like a first-class facility to maximize income and the return on investment to the investors. And uh, frankly, they don't need to because it's already running fine as it is in many cases. Well, you know, a, a great operator can buy that facility and significantly increase the income and the value. For example, one of our operators yesterday announced that they bought a 500-unit self-storage facility in Punta Gorda, Florida, uh, from a mom-and-pop operator, even though it was large, they're going to be able to raise rents 24% in 60 days. Hmm. And because they're month-to-month leases, it's not going to take them a year to get there. I mean, they're that far below market. Well, I mean, without diving too deep into details, that means that the net operating income should go up by at least 24%, which means the value of the facility should also go up by exactly 24%. But if you put 50% debt on that, that means the return on investment to the investors is double, right? So the RO, you know, the return on equity might be 50% instead of just 24 or so percent. And it might even be higher if their leverage is a little higher. And so that's a pretty stunning outcome in just 60 days of owning a property, but there's a lot more. They're going to be adding marketing. They're going to be adding a showroom, selling locks, box tape, boxes, tape and scissors. They might put a propane filling station in or a, a billboard if it's in the right location, or they might actually add on boat and RV storage, which is, you know, Florida would be a great place to do that near the coast. There's so many value adds to self-storage, which I had never imagined before I dove in deeper. And one cool thing is people don't typically leave for a rent increase. So if I increased your apartment rent by 24%, you'd probably leave rather than paying an extra three or four or $5,000 a year. But if I increase your $100 storage unit by 24 bucks, you're probably going to look around and say, well, it's probably just the same price down the street. And I sure don't want to spend a weekend, get a U-Haul, get my friends together to move my junk, excuse me, my treasures down the street just to save 24 bucks a month. Hey, I'm probably going to take a weekend off and clear that place out soon anyway. And of course, they often never do. And now let's take a moment for a quick commercial break. And we would like to thank our sponsor, Locum Story. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? 
Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, Locum Tenants might be a solution for you. If you're considering Locum Tenants either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two or 20. Fortunately, Locum Story has the answers you need. It is packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians just like you. LocumStory.com has nothing to sell. It's simply a resource for information where you'll find all kinds of super handy tools that let you see Locum's trends for your specialty. Be able to compare it with different Locum's agencies and there's even a quiz to help decide if Locum's is right for you. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual Locum's physicians who have firsthand Locum's experience. LocumStory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about Locum. So everyone, make sure to check out LocumStory.com. Well, I think um, what's interesting as I, I look at your journey is, uh, which is unusual really, you know, being in several different asset classes as you have been. You've been in land, you've been in residential, you've been in um, multifamily and, and now in self-storage kind of commercial. I have to imagine that knowing, knowing who, who you have uh, been in your track record, I mean, nothing amazing lasts forever. Right. I mean, at what point do you consider moving on from self-storage? Well, we, we already have in a sense, and that is, so first of all, we're only investing in self-storage deals that have a lot of intrinsic value, like the one I just told you about in Florida. But we're also looking for the next asset class that has a margin of safety, has intrinsic value, has a lot of fragmentation, meaning there's a lot of mom and pop owners. And we have already found that in mobile home parks. There's you know, 43 or 44,000 mobile home parks in the US, 85% owned by mom and pops, but also in RV parks. If you haven't noticed, I'm sure you have, RV park, um, RV usage has exploded since COVID. It went up five times as much in 2020 alone as it did in 2019. And uh, though there are 11.2 million RV owners in the US, about nine or 10 million more people, more households say they wanna buy an RV within five years or less. So the demand on these parks is just overwhelming. And the number of mom and pop owners of the eight or 9,000 parks in the US, the vast majority are owned by small operators and then there's a handful of institutional investors as well. So it really is, a, a, we're thrilled to announce last night that we were adding you know, RV parks to our funds. Interesting. Yeah, I, I personally believe that um, I'm very interested in the self-storage space, but as with, with many asset classes right now, which I throw multifamily in there, residential, um, certainly the stock market's taken a bit of a dip lately, but with rates rising and um, the, I'm sure it probably hasn't fully materialized yet because it's going to be a slow reaction to it. Right. And you have people, uh, most commercial loans, I think most people don't realize that uh, when it comes to real estate, whether it's multifamily, standard commercial, storage, uh, whatever, that 
almost all of those loans, at least from my experience, are not fixed for 30 years like residential can be. Usually they have, you know, they're like five-year loans, seven-year loans, 10-year loans before your interest rate ends up going, uh, being changed, right? They're, they're essentially arms um, that we would use in, in residential. And so um, I have to imagine there's going to be people out there that have invested in these things and now the turnaround and interest rates are higher. They might want to sell. Cap rates have gone up, which would be good to buy, um, mm-hmm. but sucky to, to sell. And I, I believe, you know, with inflation being as, as high as it's been, you know, interest rates are likely to get higher in the short term of the next two to three years. There could be some great opportunities to buy, but the next six months to a year sure seems to me like, uh, man, you're, you're more times than not, you're buying at the height of the market based on the way things have been going. Like self-storage, for example, we've had right. tons of people moving all over the country. Well, now COVID isn't as much of an issue. Uh, I'm sure places like Texas and Florida are still hot just because of the income tax. Uh, lack of income taxes there mm-hmm. relative to other places. But um, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily think we're going in some horrible recession like 2007, 2008, 2009, or 2001, 2002, 2003. But th- this seems to be, to me, you know, a pretty challenging environment to be buying in and not a very attractive one across pretty much every single asset class. What do you think? Agree? Disagree? I totally agree with that. Um, and I think, you know, the important thing to think about when you think about that is, are you buying with a significant margin of safety? And the way to do that is to buy assets that have a lot of intrinsic value. And that's the way we do that is finding an operator who has an expert eye and a team to acquire these assets. You can't just do this casually. Uh, My favorite team has eight people plus a manager every day, five days a week, 40 hours a week, calling, emailing, texting, looking up different owners and, you know, calling from their database, trying to find the right asset to buy at the right time. And so by doing that, they're able to, you know, hopefully find that, for example, in Beeville, Texas, town of 12,000, a self-storage facility where the five kids were fighting the parents had passed away, unfortunately. They were running the self-storage facility into the ground. There was no advertising or marketing to speak of. Rates were 25 to 30% below market. Occupancy or vacancy was double or even quadruple what the, you know, what it should have been. And um, so the uh, my guy's team contacted these kids. My friend was on a plane within a few days. And he made them a $2.4 million cash offer. He closed on it, found out that it had been on the market with a residential agent in that area for five and a half million. Anyway, bought it for four or excuse me, 2.4 million, went and fixed all the problems, kicked out or, you know, got the bad tenants up to speed. You remember we're leveraging their stuff and there's no eviction moratorium. So we've got their stuff and they have to pay or you know, get their stuff auctioned off pretty quickly. But at any rate, um, had the value of that, the appraised value in less than four months up from 2.4 million was up to 4.6 million. Now, for the first time, he put debt on it. He put 2 million in debt on it. 
instead of that being the 83% loan to cost, it would have been up front. Now that 2 million in debt was only 43% leverage and gave him a tremendous margin of safety going forward. When you can find deals like that, um, well, you know, it's a good time to buy. Well, here's, um, obviously I said, I'm, I'm personally interested in self-storage and, you know, for me, I'm going to wait on the sidelines here for a little while because I need to get educated. And uh, I believe that when you start something you've never done before, always try and start small. And so I'm curious to get your feedback on this. You know, uh, I totally see a lot of the mom and pop things. I personally buy and sell a lot of land. So I'm a land flipper. And Mm -hmm. um, you see this in, in land too, you know, dealing with a lot of individuals, although it's a much smaller scale than, than commercial real estate, like self-storage is. So my intention is, hey, you know, if I can find a facility here in Minnesota, it might be out a couple of hours from the Twin Cities, but something 500K to a mill, ideally, you know, something that's um, maybe it's an acre on three acres or something, you know, where we can um, mm-hmm. expand it, um, that, you um, Maybe I could get, get bank financing if I do 30% down or 10% down or something like that, depending upon what kind of program we can find. And then I hire people to help go through that learning process of what is this like? How do we manage it? You know, finding the different tools and capabilities. Um, do you think like for someone starting out, $500 million is a lot of money, um, but it's not huge. Can you find deals out there like that, you think, in the mom and pop type thing, or maybe in the future that might be possible with cap rates rising? You know, what do you, what do you mm-hmm. think about kind of my thought and idea of venturing in here? Well, for years, like I said earlier, I did not know how to get into commercial real estate and I wanted to, but I didn't know where the on-ramp was. So I dedicated the last uh, one third of my new book on self-storage to that answering that question, how do you get started? And I have seven chapters in that last section of the book. The first chapter is describing exactly what you just said. I call it stair-stepping, basically starting small and then going, you know, fixing it up, raise the rents, raise the income, and then sell it and then go to a larger facility and then keep repeating that. So that is one of the seven paths, I believe, to success in commercial real estate and specifically in self-storage. Is, is there any pitfalls with that that I should really be thinking about? You know, like good deal versus a bad deal kind of a thing? Yeah, I think one, so I think one of the failures of my new book, uh, was published by Bigger Pockets Publishing um, last fall. The problem is I wrote it before COVID and I don't think I did a great job explaining the benefits of automating a facility. And so now automation has just gone to a totally new level. You can rent your you know, unit, never talk to anybody you know, on your iPhone or Android. And um, I think that you know, it'd be great to check into all those automations and all those opportunities there the pitfall would be that you might not be able to do some things with that small facility that you would with a larger one. For example, you wouldn't probably 
want to have a full-time employee or even a part-time employee there to do U-Haul, which is a huge profit center, by the way, uh, to do U-Haul on commission or to have, you know, retail items like locks, boxes, tape, and scissors, um, things like that. Uh, you probably wouldn't have, I don't see that as a huge pitfall, but I am saying it's different from what you might be when you get into the 30, you know, let's, let's say that's a 10,000 square foot facility versus a 35,000 square foot facility where you would potentially be getting into all those other aspects. Um, so, I mean, I think that's uh, potential issues to look at that, you know, eventually you're getting to the size where you want to run a retail operation, like I said, instead of just a piece of passive real estate. Do you think it are cap rates generally higher or lower on those starter ones? Cap rates are generally higher, which means the price, of course, per dollar of net operating income is lower. And so with a lower price, there's more potential upside. One good thing about that is that larger and medium-sized operators are going lower and lower in their size um, you know, targets because they're trying to find value. They're trying to find good deals. And so somebody who used to say, hey, I only buy at 60,000 square feet and up might now be looking at 20,000 square feet and up, especially with the new capability of automating. Yeah, no, I think that's true. The other thing I would wonder, that might be a con too of a smaller facility. Um, institutional money generally isn't there, is it, Paul? You know, which is often an exit strategy for a lot of people. You improve it, you kind of sell it to pension funds or you know, other institutional types. Is that true or, or no? Does this institutional money get into that kind of thing? It's a fantastic place to sell a portfolio of assets because they're having a hard time finding a way to, uh, you know, to deploy enough capital. In other words, they might say, hey, we don't want to really let, we don't want to write a check anything less than $50 million. Well, pull together 25 of those $2 million facilities, automate them, put them under one franchise, put them under one flag, one marketing system, one property management system. And yes, you might be able to sell that portfolio to an institutional investor, which would be a tremendous exit for your investors in most cases. Mm. Like a standalone one would be pretty hard to sell to an institutional investor, I would imagine. Yeah. If you're a standalone, you're going to want to be in the, I mean, we have a, we have a facility in Ishpeming, Michigan, which is the largest facility we've invested in. I believe hmm. it's 160,000 square feet in a little town like that, which proves, I mean, it's extremely profitable, which proves, you know, you don't have to be in a large city to make this work. Um, would that be an institutional target? I kind of doubt it because it's in such a small town. Um, but, uh, you know, in the right town, uh, a 50 or $100,000 square foot facility, or excuse me, 50 or 100,000 square foot facility could be an institutional target, especially if it's somebody like public storage, public storage uh, or U-Haul. They have a lot of criteria that they want to see before they'll acquire a facility, but they will acquire them. Hmm. Uh, any, any other, you know, kind of cautions to people that are 
looking at real estate, maybe a mistake you've made in the last few years where not everything went perfect that we can all learn from? Yeah, the, the most dangerous time to uh, invest in cell storage is actually in the ground up development phase. In fact, just north of you was one is one of our lesser um, profitable um, deals right now. It's in Ramsey, 38 miles from yeah. the center of Minneapolis. Yeah. And it's on the rail line. There's a lot of good stuff about this asset. But uh, the uh, COVID, I mean, it opened right when COVID hit the headlines. And so it took a long time to fill up. And uh, that time between, you know, breaking ground and being at 85 to 95% occupancy is the most dangerous time, especially if a big competitor comes in down the street. Let's say you're just open for business and you find out that public storage is going in down the street. That is a really, really difficult situation. So that's one of the big dangers, um, I would say that the biggest danger in self-storage. Another, I was just on a conference call an hour ago with a self-storage operator who said that the price of their materials was going up sometimes seven to 10% per month. Mm. And the labor mm -hmm. quotes were, you know, the labor quotes were, you know, hey, it'll take me months to get to you. And the quote is double what you would have thought. So really, really dangerous time to get in and assume that you're going to be able to get the same type of outcome that you would have even a year ago. We, we moved into a new office here and um, beautiful, beautiful location ran by a REIT. And what's uh, fascinating, even for them, you know, having pulling power and whatnot, that uh, just to get door frames took like five months. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, it, in our little tiny office space of, you know, 1500 square feet, you know, things were delayed for three months. I can't even imagine building something from the ground up in this environment. You know, right. it's just, just crazy. Um, well, Paul, this has been great. Um, any, any other words of wisdom you want to share with us? Yeah. Another Warren Buffett quote I'll leave you with, and that is, and this kind of goes right back to the beginning where I was talking about being an entrepreneurial investor or sometimes speculating. Buffett said, the best investors say no a lot. The very best investors say no almost all the time. And um, I would really recommend that you make your, you know, as a listener, I'd recommend that you make your default no. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, like I mentioned, the rising tide has lifted all boats for about 12 or 13 years. And, uh, but that tide's going to go out. And then we'll recognize who the lucky amateurs are and who the true experts are. The problem is you don't really know an expert from an amateur in a rising market. In fact, an amateur can sometimes look better because they take dip bigger risks. And those bigger risks, like bigger leverage, for example, can pay off in a rising market, but in a falling market, well, we're going to see, you know, who we're going to find out who are the true experts. Now it's possible inflation will save the lucky amateurs and their investors, but I don't want to invest on hope and possible. I want to invest on something I really believe has every reasonable belief of succeeding. And I recommend that your listeners do the same. Awesome. Well, you mentioned a few resources already, you know, your book, Storing Up Profits, 
which even includes people like myself might be good to pick it up if they want to figure out um, how to get started in this. Any other resources you want to make available to us that that might be good for people to check out? Yeah, like I said, for years, I didn't know how to get into commercial real estate. And um, so I put together an e-course, which is also an e-book um, on getting into commercial real estate. You can get that or you can get a free e-book on self-storage or another one on mobile home parks. You can get all that at our website, which is Wellings Capital. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S, wellingscapital.com forward slash resources. Love it. Thank you so much, Paul, for hanging out and joining and talking to us about storage today. And we'll make sure to link those things in the show notes and really appreciate you being on the podcast. Hey, same here, Dave. It was a real honor. Thank you. All right, my friends, that wraps up another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. And remember, remember to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded from registration. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. 
And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.